Jesus knows you inside and out with all of your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. I mean, he knows it all, right? All the embarrassing stuff, all the stuff that makes you blush, all the stuff that makes you feel shame down to your very core. He knows it all, and he loves you. So, for crying out loud, just let him love you. Because there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. There is nothing you can do, good or bad, wicked or holy, there is nothing you can do that will cause Jesus to love you any more or to love you any less. Listen, reading your Bible faithfully for three months straight does not make Jesus love you more. Serving him tirelessly, giving extra money does not make him love you any more at all. And rolling around in the pig pen of sin doesn't make him love you any less. You cannot phase the love of Jesus at all. You don't have that kind of power. You don't have that ability. You don't have that superhero strength to phase the love of Jesus in any way at all with either the good things or the bad things that you do. So deal with it. And just let him love on you. And some of you need to hear that right at the beginning of the sermon. Because some of you are carrying the weight of guilt and shame because of things you have done. And you're wondering how in the world God could love someone like you. I mean, how could he love someone like you? And some of you feel like failures. You feel like a failure as a parent. You feel like a failure in your marriage. You feel like a failure as a church member, as a student, as a teenager, as a child, as a disciple. And you wonder, how in the world could God love you? I mean, surely, surely, right? Surely, he must be sick of you by now, right? Well, he isn't sick of you, and stop calling me Shirley. But who hasn't felt this at some point? Deep down, all of us have. So if you're here today and you're discouraged and downcast because of things you have done or things you haven't done, and you're just wondering why God even puts up with you, and you're wondering if he even likes you, let me give you some good news this morning. No matter how bad you are, how messed up you are, how broken and damaged you are, Jesus still loves you. No matter how far you run away, how much you stiff arm him, how much you keep returning to your darling sins, Jesus just keeps on loving you. He just loves us because he loves us. That makes me so happy because I can be really unlovable And I can be really unlivable, hard to live with. Just ask my family. But Jesus keeps on loving me. 
His love is persistent, it's stubborn, it's tenacious, it just won't let go. And it's this kind of love that David sings about in Psalm 36. So turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 36. We're going to see that David is in love with the love of God. The love of God is precious to him. It's, it's everything to him. And David will tell us in Psalm 36 that God's love is everywhere. David sees God's love all over creation. But first, before he gets there, he's going to tell us about something else that's everywhere and all over creation. And that something else is something that often captures our hearts. What is it? What is it that's out there everywhere that often captures our hearts? What is it? It's just some filthy animals known as the wicked, those who don't know Jesus. They're everywhere, aren't they? Psalm 36, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So David starts off this song by inviting us to gaze upon the open heart surgery that he's performing on the wicked. He wants us to see what it's like inside the heart of every pagan on the planet, every human being that does not know Jesus, that has not been born again. David tells us that sin speaks to the evil person from deep within their heart. Sin is the music, the soundtrack of the sinful heart. It's what drives all that he does. Wicked people perk up when sin calls. That's what David is saying here. Sin is the background music of someone who is lost and dead in sin. And because sin is on repeat, nonstop, in the background, then it's no surprise that David tells us that evil men do not fear God. Now, we know they should fear God, but they don't. They're not afraid of a holy God. They keep living the way they want without batting an eye. And this is exactly why you see what's on the news every single night. Psalm 36 could sponsor the evening news because the evening news is usually full of evil people just doing what they want without any fear of God whatsoever. Murder, theft, corruption, greed, lies. It's just Psalm 36 on your TV screen or on your smartphone or tablet. David's Hebrew is pretty clunky here in verse 2. The ESV translates verse 2 this way, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. But in Hebrew, it's much clunkier. Let me read it to you. Literally in Hebrew, it's, For it causes to be smooth to him in his eyes to find his sin to hate. That's a mouthful. Here's what David is saying about the average pagan. It's easy for them to not see their sin. Sin just comes naturally to the wicked. It doesn't phase them. So it's very easy for them. It's very smooth to not see and hate their sin. It's just smooth sailing. So you ever wonder, why does that evil person do this? Why are these wicked politicians doing this? 
they don't see it. But David continues to expose the wicked. He tells us that their words are evil. Deception just flows out of them, he says. They despise wisdom. They lay around on their beds, daydreaming about how to cause trouble, and they welcome evil into their lives. They say to evil, come on in, make yourself at home. So, with verses 1 and 4, how's that for the first verse to a worship song? Huh? And don't forget that Psalm 36 is a worship song. It would be sung in public at the tabernacle in church, if you will. Does David need to attend a, a, song, a worship songwriting workshop? Doesn't David know that God's people just want positive, uplifting lyrics? Doesn't David know that Caleb is not going to play his songs if he starts off so dark? Doesn't David know that to be on Christian radio, you've got to write sugary, sweet, uplifting Pumpkin spice potpourri, bubble gum and glitter. It is always well with my soul. I can't share my struggles. Kinds of songs. Doesn't David know that? David knows this. And he's not interested in landing the opening gig for Chris Tomlin's new tour. David likes to keep it real. So he starts off by telling you what CCM artists on Caleb should be telling you. And it's this. There are evil people in the world and they will hate you. And they will do evil things that they dreamed up on their beds while scrolling through Instagram. And you will have to live with them until verse 12 becomes an eschatological reality. We'll get to verse 12 in a moment. So verses 1 through 4 are giving us a wake-up call to life in a fallen world. There are evil people who love evil and we have to deal with them. So if your favorite Christian radio station is not playing songs that remind you of these realities in verses 1 through 4, then you have Psalm 36 to help. And you can thank David for that. And you can thank David for what he tells us about God's love. Because if you're like me, you don't really believe it sometimes. We like to preach and sing about the free grace of God, the outrageous and scandalous nature of grace, God's unmerited favor given freely to sinners who don't deserve it. But do we really believe it? I mean, do you really believe that God's grace is just free for the taking with No footnotes, no endnotes, no long paragraph in small font like you see on those commercials on TV. Like if you have a migraine, take this medicine, but you might get everything in that little paragraph. There's none of that with God's love. There's no gigantic paragraph in a small font on your screen that you better read clearly. God's grace is free. Do you believe it? Do you really believe that God just showers you with his love and mercy and you cannot earn it in any way? Do we really believe his love is unconditional? That there are no conditions to receive his love, no hoops to jump through, that it's just free for the taking? Do we really believe that? We should because our first name is Grace, right? We should believe our first name. Well, David wants to help us with that. In fact, he uses up quite a bit of ink from his pen to help us really believe that Jesus really loves us. Look at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. 
Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Yahweh. So here's what David is doing when he shifts gears in verse 5, and it's very instructive for us. So he's been talking about the evil people, and now he's talking about the goodness of God. He's contrasting the ways of evil, wicked men with the goodness of God. Now notice, David doesn't contrast the wicked with the godly. He's not saying, this is what wicked people are like, and this is what the godly church people are like. Why? Why doesn't David contrast the church with the world? And the answer is, because we are just like them. We still have sin coursing through our veins. We are a Romans 7 people living in the shadow of Romans 8. We still do many of the same things that wicked, ungodly people do. We fight, we spit, we cuss. The difference, of course, is that we are united to Christ. We are forgiven. We have been adopted into God's family. But we still do bad things all the time. All the time. And so David contrasts the wicked, not with the godly, but with the goodness of God. That's a starker contrast, isn't it? Us and the world, not so much. As Master Yoda might say, too much in common wicked and godly have. Problem this is. Listen to Master Yoda, he's right. Too much in common wicked and godly have. Problem this is. David is contrasting the ways of evil men with the goodness of God. But he is also praying that what consumes his mind would be the steadfast love of God and the ways of God and the character of God and not these actions of these evil men. And this is very pertinent for us because how easy is it to be consumed by what wicked people in this world are doing? How easy is it to just fixate on that? So that it controls everything in our life. They're doing this and then it changes us. It's so easy to get caught up in politics and Hollywood and Twitter and to let all of that consume us. That's why David starts this worship song off by mentioning evil men. Because it's so easy to be consumed by all the evil that we see in this world with the government, social media, etc. Now please hear me out. I am not saying that we should just stick our heads in the sand of the Bible and ignore what's happening in our world. David's not doing that at all. He's obviously aware of what evil men are doing because they are the star of the first few verses of Psalm 36. But David doesn't let it consume him to the point that it becomes an idol or he is at least praying to that end. So I'm not saying stick your fingers in your ears and say la, 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 la to what's happening in politics and Hollywood and Twitter. God's people need to be involved. We need to speak out against evil. We need to use our social media accounts to spread truth and take a stand against evil like abortion and sex trafficking and gender issues and marriage, etc. So stand up and speak out. This is how change happens. This is how people wake up. But what I am saying and what David is saying and praying for in Psalm 36 is that the evil actions of evil men should not take over our hearts. David knows that it's easy for those things to consume us to the point that it affects us, that it steals our joy, destroys our hope, 
minimizes the sovereignty of God and makes us miserable to be around, among many other things. Listen, there is a way to stand up against evil and have it not become an idol, have it not become something that controls us. There's a way to stand up against the evil that speaks to evil people deep in their hearts. And that's what David is saying here. He's essentially praying, Lord, let your heart control my heart, not what's in their hearts. So understand this, your heart will be controlled by either God's heart or what's in the heart of evil men as it is, as it is expressed in society. One of those will give you peace and confidence. The other will make you angry and absolutely miserable to be around. Let God's kind heart control your heart. David wants to be enamored with Yahweh's love. Yes, David has heard plenty of sermons about God's steadfast love, but he just can't get over it, can he? David never tires of speaking about the love of God. And I hope you never tire of hearing about God's love. When you're tired of hearing about God's love, that's a sign that you need to hear about God's love. And when David mentions God's steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word hesed. If you've been around grace for a while, then you know we've talked a lot about this Hebrew word. Hesed is God's loyal covenant love. The best definition, I've told you many many times, the best definition of this Hebrew word is actually found in a children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have a copy, get it. I'm talking to you adults. Get the Jesus Storybook Bible and read it. You'll, You'll learn how to do hermeneutics. You will learn how to connect Jesus in Connect every Old Testament story to Jesus, how it's anticipating a Redeemer. So you need to get it. That's your homework this week. Pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible. The parable probably has it on sale. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of, of that book, repeats this refrain throughout the book, and it really is the best definition of the Hebrew word hesed, which the ESV here translates as steadfast love. And it's this. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. That's hesed. It's a love that is centered in the will, meaning God is just determined to love us. He is bent on loving us. It's the number one thing on his to-do list every day. And no matter how bad we are or how far away we run from him or how much we ignore him, he cannot be persuaded to stop loving us. You cannot give him enough evidence in your life to make him go, hmm, I don't think I'm going to love you anymore. You can't do that. He is determined in his will to love us even when we are determined in our wills to run away from him. Think about that. He's determined in his will, in his heart, in his mind to love us even when we are determined in our stubborn wills to run away from him. It's amazing. You're not shocked by that as you should be. And neither am I. And I'm the one preaching. Ralph Davis says this about the Hebrew word hesed. He says, it's love, but love with an oomph. Love with super glue on it. It's Yahweh's love that simply won't let go. That's hesed. God's steadfast love is a love that just won't quit. It's a love that asks for nothing in return. 
He asks for nothing. You can just receive his grace. You don't have to read the Bible to experience God's love and grace. I mean, read the Bible. You need to read the Bible. But don't think that reading the Bible is going to earn you some kind of favor. Like now that I've read the Bible and prayed, now I can kind of come into his presence and experience his kindness and grace. It's a love that asks for nothing in return. It's a love that seeks the worst possible people it can find. It's a love that delights in all kinds of sinners. God's steadfast love delights in in the strung out on heroin, seemingly hopeless cases, as well as the uptight, goody two-shoes religious people. Yes, Jesus even loves uptight religious people. He's better at that than I am, okay? Because uptight, religious, legalistic people drive me nuts. Okay, I'm just admitting that to you. Okay. Listen, Jesus just loves us and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't earn his love. We can't lose his love. We can't be good enough. We can't impress him with our faithful devotions or prayers. And we can't cause him to turn away when we don't do those things. He just loves us because he loves us. And in verse 5, David says, Yahweh's love, his hesed, extends to the heavens. It's everywhere. It's all-encompassing. And his faithfulness, he says, reaches to the clouds. The, the cognate forms in the Hebrew of this word faithfulness are used in other passages of a master craftsman. And it's used of pillars. And so the idea of God's faithfulness to us is that he's reliable and dependable. He's like a good mechanic. You want someone you can trust, reliable, dependable. That's Yahweh. He's faithful when we are fickle. And then David tells us that his righteousness is like sturdy mountains, immovable, solid, secure, and his judgments are like the deep ocean. Listen, does, God often does things in our lives that make us scratch our heads why are you doing this, God? Why are you allowing this? Why aren't you intervening? It's because his judgments are deep. Listen, you are never going to know it all. You don't have that capacity. If God explained everything that he was doing in your life, your head would explode, and you don't want that. You cannot understand all of the deep ways of God. You may scratch the surface, but David is telling us his judgments are deep. They're like the deep, like the bottom of the ocean. And I know God's doing something in your life right now that's making you scratch your head. His judgments are deep, and you're wondering, why is this happening? Lord, why, is it, why aren't you doing anything about this? And Why did that happen? We don't know. Sometimes we just have to worship and say, I trust you. Because your judgments are far deeper than what this little finite brain can handle. It's probably why David front loads his steadfast love before mentioning his judgments, that they're deep. Because we need to know that the God is, who is doing things in our lives that we don't understand loves us immensely. David's singing about the immensity of God's love and goodness here. How big God's love is. His massive universe-filling goodness. David says, if you go up into space, there you will find God's love and goodness. If you plummet deep into the sea, you will find it there too. In other words, David is saying God's love is like glitter. It just gets everywhere. His love and goodness is all over his creation. It's just everywhere you look. 
And because God's love is so massive and far-reaching and persistent and universe-filling and glitter-like and invasive, that means that Jesus knows you inside and out with all of your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins, all your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. I hope that makes you smile this morning, that you live under the smile of God if you're in Christ. Ian Duguid, which is where I got the big idea, an Old Testament scholar says this, when Jesus Christ calls you to himself, he doesn't just say to you, I love you for now, let's see how this works out as we go along. If you are holy enough and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, then maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No, when God calls you to himself, he legally binds himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. The security of your salvation does not rest, therefore, on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. Rather, it rests on his initial and irrevocable choice. God is not stuck with you forever. I love this next line. As if you both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. God actually loves you. Hard though that may be for us to grasp sometimes. He knows you inside and out with all your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. Isn't that good? Jesus loves you with all your quirks. You have people in your life who do not like your quirks. And they talk about other people about your quirks and say, oh, they do this and it just bothers me. There are people in your life who know all your habitual sins and they may know some of your heart idolatries, but they don't know them all. But Jesus does and he loves you, not in a general sense, but in a very specific, personal way. David knew this love and it made him love Yahweh back. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. David says, Yahweh's love is precious It's rare, it's special, it's unique, it's valuable. It's the most important thing to David. It's everything to him. David can lose everything, but as long as he has God's love, as long as God loves him, that's all he needs. And David needs Yahweh's love because he's always getting into some kind of trouble in the Psalms, isn't he? David is always in a pickle when you read the Psalms. And that's why he prays in verse 10, continue your steadfast love. Because David's always in a bind. And David knows that there is also this protective element to Yahweh's love. He knows that he needs to take shelter in the shadow of Yahweh's wings. Like a baby chick. It's the metaphor here. He needs this protective love of God because he's always in trouble. Alan Ross says, uh, this is what the love of God means to believers. It is their salvation from sin and their deliverance from judgment as well as their security through this life. 
And this is why it is so precious to them. Let me ask you this morning. Is his love precious to you? Can you say, say these words with David from Psalm 63? Because experiencing your loyal love is better than life itself, my lips will praise you. Can you say that this morning? That his love is better than life. It's better than anything in this world. And just like a baby chick is protected and provided for by its mother, so too God's people are protected and provided for by Jesus. And we see that provision when David says that we feast on the abundance of your house and we drink from the river of your delights. It's it's a party. See, when you come to Jesus, it's a big celebration and it's a never-ending celebration. It just goes on and on and on. When David says here that we feast on the abundance of your house, the house he's talking about is the sanctuary, the tabernacle where they offered sacrifices. And the word Hebrew word abundance is actually the Hebrew word for fatness. It's the word for fat. David is referring to the fat portion of the meat of the sacrifices. The fat was the best parts and would be offered to Yahweh on the altar. Some would go to the priests as well. So what David is saying is that Yahweh gives his people the best stuff, the good stuff, the good cut of meat. David is thinking about the peace offering here where a portion of that sacrifice would be cooked on the altar and would be returned to the worshiper. I mean, it, you literally, it was like barbecue at church. You offered an animal on the, on the altar, it would be burned up, they would cook it up, and the priest would give you part of that, and you would eat it right then and there. I mean, it's like going to church and saying, I'm a sinner, and then the pastor says, here's some tri-tip. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I'm a sinner, I'm, this animal is going to die in my place and take the, the blame, and the pastor says, here's some tri-tip, you are forgiven. I mean, sign me up for that kind of church. But one of y'all has to serve me, though, okay? In fact, we'll do that in two weeks, okay, at our tri-tip picnic barbecue. Come to church, hear the word of God, and then maybe as they're serving tri-tip, can we do that? As they're serving tri-tip, can we, next, in two weeks, can we just say, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. That's what David is saying here. The peace offering, a portion of the sacrifice was returned to the worshiper. They would eat meat with others in the presence of the Lord saying, I'm forgiven, have some tri-tip, I'm forgiven. And they would share a meal together celebrating that they had peace with God. And that's exactly what we're gonna do today at this table. It's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that we have peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf for our sins. Then David also says that we drink from the river of God's delights. This is cool here because the Hebrew word for delights is the word that's used in Genesis for the Garden of Eden. It's the word for Eden here. It's the word for pleasures. We drink from the river of Eden. We drink from the river of your delights, your pleasures. We drink from the river of the gospel, that it is finished We find our delight and joy in Jesus because he is the fountain of life 
and the fountain of light. And this is why David prays in verse 10 for God's love to continue. He wants God's love. He wants God's light, God's righteousness to get all over his life like glitter. He wants to see God everywhere. Enjoy him, experience him, taste him, feel him. Why? Why do you want God's love everywhere, David? Well, here's why. Because those filthy animals that we talked about in verses 1 through 4, they're still hanging around in Psalm 36. And David needs to be reminded there that there is an eschatological end times element to all of this. Look at verse 11. He'll talk about those filthy animals again. It says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, and they are thrust down, unable to rise. David needs to be reminded of all that God is for him, but also what that means for the wicked. If they don't trust in Christ, then they will not survive the final judgment. They will be thrust down, unable to rise up. They will say for eternity, I've fallen and I can't get up. And they can't because they're lost and separated from Jesus, which is why we need to take the gospel to the central coast. And this is the message that we want to take to the central coast. We want to tell every person, listen, Jesus knows you inside and out with all your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. And he died for you. And God raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's coming back again to make all the sad things come untrue. Will you trust in him? Will you believe? Get that into your bloodstream and then go share it with someone today. One book that has really helped me to understand God's love is a book that was first published in 1692 by Puritan Walter Marshall. Think about what he says here as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. I've read this to you before, but it bears repeating. Uh, Walter Marshall said this, You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you secretly think he condemns and hates you. This kind of slavish fear will compel you to some hypocritical obedience, such as what Pharaoh did when he let the Israelites go against his will. However, you will never truly love God if you are compelled only by fear. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. Just as John testifies in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, Because fear consists of torment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. And when we come to the table today, you come to meet a God here who loves you personally. That's what we celebrate with communion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, believes in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. 
we celebrate the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of Jesus at this table. We celebrate that God is determined to love us, that he is bent on loving us, that no matter how bad we are, how far away we run from him, or how much we ignore him, he cannot be persuaded to stop loving us. We celebrate the free grace of God at this table. No strings attached at all. We celebrate the outrageous and scandalous nature of grace. That God's love is unconditional. That there are no conditions to receive his love. That there are no hoops to jump through. That it's free for the taking. So come today. Believe on Jesus Trust in him. Drink from his river of delights. Feast on the abundance of his grace. Come and be free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. We don't deserve it. We know that. We don't understand it because we want to resist we want to do things to earn it and we can't it's just there it's free you just love us so help us to be uh, astonished again at your steadfast love how persistent it is thank you that your grace your favor is free lord we just you just love us help us to rest in that to truly rest, to believe your word, believe your promises and trust in you. We do confess our sins, Lord. We repent, which just means we turn back to you and collapse into your arms, collapse into your loving arms and say, we don't want sin, our idols, our darling sins. We don't want them anymore. We want you, Jesus. And so we just collapse into your arms this morning and say, forgive us. And may your love pull praise out of us. David says that uh, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. May we praise you today and worship you and honor you because of your steadfast love to sinners like us. In your name we pray, amen.